Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Disappointment can cause you to do the most outlandish things. I share with you a story that I'm going to share the ending first, just so you stay with the story, because it is so outlandish. But it involves the colonel and his wife. The colonel, uh, well, he had a mistress. And because he had a mistress, his wife decided that he needed to go. He needed to die. But she didn't want to kill him. She just wanted to have him killed. So what did she do? She decided to stage her own murder to hide out as long as it took, and then to feign amnesia and come back and ask, what happened? And oh, no, my husband's gone. So what did she do? She took her car. She drove it to Newlands Corner, England, right to the edge of a chalk pit, and she pushed it over the edge. She left a big fur coat. It was December of 1926, and it was very cold. She made sure to leave the key in the ignition, but the ignition off so that the investigators would see, surely, this car was pushed over the edge. It was not driven into the pit. She had made a phone call the evening when the colonel was having a dinner party. His dinner party with his special lady was to announce their engagement, and he was not yet separated from his wife. So she called and said that she was going to come over and make a scene. And so he quickly hung up the phone and raced home to try to calm her down. But arriving at home, she was not there, and so he went back to the party. Later that evening, the car was discovered, and the colonel was asked many questions. Where were you when this all happened? Well, I was at the dinner party with my lady. Oh, so you were with your wife? No, I was with my lady. So... Were you at the party the entire time? No, I left for a little while. Where did you go? And immediately he had no alibi. Immediately he raised to the top of the suspect list. Well, meanwhile, the wife was trying to hide as long as it took until her husband was arrested, convicted, and ultimately executed. She hoped that that would all happen fairly quickly so that she could return back to her normal life. Well, they sent out the dogs. They sent out a search party. They searched a 40-square-mile area. They dredged the body of water next to the chalk pit to try to find the missing wife. They searched, and they searched. Interesting thing is, it was only 12 days later when the wife was discovered. There was just one major problem. The wife was a very famous person worldwide. She had tried to get away with it. The problem is she was discovered within 12 days on the other side of England. Why? 
because this mastermind, this murder mystery mastermind was actually a very well-known matron of murder mysteries. Her name was Agatha Christie. And fortunately, no, the colonel was not executed. So it is true. When you are disappointed, you are bound to do the most outlandish things. Well, we find ourselves at Wednesday, midway through that final week of Christ. We're at Wednesday. Typically, Wednesday is known as hump day. The worst is past, and it's all downhill from here. Well, that is unless you know God's story. Because the rest of the week is literally all uphill as your Messiah must drag his cross all the way uphill to the top of a hill called Calvary. It's been a week packed full of events. Sunday, the people swung palm branches and cries of crown him announced his arrival. By Friday, the whip will swing and cries of crucify him will announce his departure. On Monday, Jesus cleared the temple square of all the riffraff. On Friday, the riffraff will overflow the temple square. On Tuesday, the Pharisees and teachers of the law tried to nail Jesus with trick questions. On Friday, they'll nail him with a hammer. It's Wednesday, and I need you to do me a favor. I need you to pretend like you have no idea what's coming up ahead. I need you to pretend that all you know is what has passed. It's Wednesday, and that's all the info you've got. It's Wednesday, and Judas finds himself walking alone. It's unsettling for him. He had spent the last three and a half years struggling to stay ahead of the choking dust kicked up by 24 sandals belonging to 11 disciples and one rabbi. He used to keep track of the miles. Miles spent expecting to hear a new teaching, some new theology from the master teacher. But now the miles had become as blurry as the message of the message giver. He used to enjoy hearing about the kingdom. It was his favorite topic and not his alone. Thousands of people swarmed to hear this teacher talk about a kingdom, a kingdom free from the oppression of the pagan imperialist. A kingdom, a freedom, a promised land now. He had heard about this all his life. Everyone knew this. The kingdom's present and past. Currently, they were living under the iron-like strength of the Romans who had stomped them into submission. The Greeks before them had flaunted their superior culture like brass gowns. Before them, the Medo-Persians had held them tightly in their silver grasp. Second only to the imperialist of great mind and ingenuity that golden empire of Babylon. They knew this. Judas had heard this as a child over and over again. His father 
Simon Iscariot would read from the scroll of Daniel, and their favorite part was reading Daniel chapter 2, where it spoke of an image. And this image served as a countdown clock of sorts, a calendar where most of the days had been crossed through. According to the Iscariot family, they were passionate, and they were firm on their belief that they had made it all the way down to the bottom of that statue. And the only thing to come next was a stone that would demolish the kingdom standing on them. Simon Iscariot had read to Judas so many times Daniel chapter 2 that Judas could quote this from memory himself, even as a child. He knew the scene. He knew that in Daniel 2, there was not one object. There were two. The first was the statue. The statue of a man segmented into several sections of various metals. But there was a second object in that prophecy. There was a stone cut out of a mountain, but not cut by human hands. A stone that would come hurtling down and would demolish the feet of iron mixed with clay. Iron mixed with clay, signifying a people group who were mixed, who were divided, who appeared to be strong, but were anything but. A kingdom that once it was demolished, that the whole image would come crashing down, and the only thing that would remain would be a stone the size of a mountain, and that stone would remain forever. The kingdom of God would reign forever, and all they would know from that moment on is the nation of Israel in the promised land. At that time, there was a group of church members, a section known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were very meticulous about looking at Scripture and seeing where are we now. And through their diligent study, the Zealots were absolutely certain that they were now living in the whites of the toenails of Daniel's image. And the only thing to come next was this demolishing stone. They had the current events. They had the news to prove it. In fact, about 30 years earlier, when one of the Herods had died, his two sons nearly slit each other's throat, both politically and physically, as they wrestled for their father's governorship. It was a nation divided. Their grasp was slipping. They knew now was the time. Now when the Messiah came, he would crush the oppressors. Now was the time of their freedom, and they knew it at the core of their heart. Now, within this group known as the Zealots, they had a very unique beginning. You see, because it was this transition of leadership that I just spoke of with the Herod 30 years earlier that led Rome to decide, you know, we need to take an official census. It was this same census that ensured that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And it was this same census that ignited a group within the church that created the group that we now know as the Zealots. And those Zealots, as they continued to develop, there was a group within them that radicalized. And that group became known as the Sakari. Sakari is the Greek word for dagger men. These men would hide a curved dagger in the sleeve of their robes. They would go into the crowded market, and they would assassinate any 
who were giving aid or support to the Romans. Judas's father was a member of the Sicarii, and Judas himself was a member of the Sicarii. Many people who would greet them and would hear their surname assumed because many of the people there um, spoke a different dialect. And in their dialect, if you tried to break down the name Iscariot, you would actually think it was saying they were from Cariot. But any person who wanted to dig a little deeper and investigate could quickly see that there was no such place called Cariot anywhere on any map. Why? Because it didn't exist. It was a badge of honor. It wasn't a zip code. So, Judas finds himself walking down this long road alone. Why is Judas walking alone? Perhaps it's because he was disappointed. Now, disappointment is not simply when someone espouses a view that's different than yours. You're not disappointed when that happens. You're disappointed when someone takes all of your hopes and your dreams and puts them into words you never had before and then announces to you that everything that you think that they just said is a misinterpretation. That's not what I said at all. When someone takes all your hopes and dreams and lifts them up and then suddenly drops them, that's disappointment. And that's what Judas experienced. The problem Judas experienced was this. What do you do when your favorite preacher preaches bad theology? Do you stand by them? Do you let this one little variance of teaching? Is it a deal breaker? Does this one difference in their theology undermine every single thing that they've ever taught and ever will teach? Will it crumble the foundation of all their teaching? For Judas... It did. You see, the zealots could point to so many places in Scripture to prove their point that you would either give up or sign up. They knew what the Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah was heaven's sword. He was going to come and smite the enemy. He was going to blow away the enemy like shaft. He was going to crush them like a giant mountain. To them, the Messiah was a warrior, not a wimp. Judas was convinced that Jesus was magical, that he was mystical, that he was mysterious. Judas just never became convinced that Jesus was Messiah. Why? Because Jesus had bad theology. Judas had seen Jesus raise the dead, but recently all Jesus seemed to talk about was joining the dead. The Jews needed a Savior from the Romans. And Jesus urged them to act like servants. The Messiah was supposed to bring in a new exodus. And all Christ talked about was rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. Judas saw Jesus mend the withered legs of men. And yet Jesus seemed not concerned in the least to heal the crippled church. Jesus had opened the eyes of the sightless and yet seemed blind to his own misinterpretation of prophecy. When Judas 
looked at Jesus. The longer he looked at Jesus, the less he saw a Messiah. The challenge is that the zealots had filled in every single puzzle piece of what the Messiah was supposed to be, and their theology was complete except for one piece. And with their help, they had enlightened Judas so much that he could easily take a look at Christ and realize that he is theologically out of shape. He didn't fit. He didn't even belong in the puzzle box. So what do you do? Is it time for a return? Time for an exchange? Time to go back to the shop where you got it and ask for your money back? For Judas, it did. Judas had outgrown the teaching of Jesus Christ. So, he walked, and he walked alone. He hoped, he prayed that where he was going, the people would still allow him in. A sliver of moon and the stars crawled silently across the blackness, but the breeze was full of conversations from thousands of pilgrims who covered the holy mount and pressed out the usual calm. He looked to his right, attached to Pilate's palace, Amber light glowed from within the prison windows. Candles flickered. The shadows of the men inside wobbled along the walls. Inside one of those barred windows sat a true hero, a more perfect Messiah. It was someone that Judas knew well and wished him well, but he wasn't unique there. Most people knew the hero inside. He was Jesus, another Jesus, literally another Jesus. First name Jesus, last name Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. And Judas had to pause there for a moment and ask himself a very serious question. Had he chosen the wrong Jesus? For three and a half years, had he followed the wrong Jesus? Because Jesus Barabbas was a zealot just like him. Jesus Barabbas was part of the Sicarii, as he was. The only difference is that Barabbas got caught, and Judas did not. And now many people prayed that God would work a miracle, a twist of fate, some way to release their Messiah, Jesus Barabbas. Isn't it interesting to note how God even answers the prayers of the theologically warped while at the same time answering prayer requests of his own? So, Judas walks, Barabbas. The name Barabbas actually is made up of two parts. It's a compound word. Bar means son of. Abbas means the father. Jesus Barabbas' name means Jesus, son of the father. Judas had followed a man for three and a half years that called himself Jesus, son of God the father. Had he followed the wrong Jesus? Little could he know that two days later a very passionate crowd would come to the same conclusion. Jesus Barabbas matched their theology more closely than Jesus the Christ. 
When given the choice between love and grace, the people preferred justice and victory. They didn't want to offer a hand of healing. They wanted men willing to offer their hands for killing. They didn't want to turn the other cheek. They wanted to overturn governments. When they lost their shirt, they didn't want to give their cloak as well. They wanted to give people the boot. Times like these cause us to ask the question, does our theology get in the way of our God? He doesn't work like that. He doesn't act like that. He doesn't work with those people. He doesn't avoid that. He does it this way, and this is how God does it. We know how God works. And then someone from church comes along and says, oh, look at God. Look how he's working over there. And look how he's working with those people. And look how he's using these unique methods. And we say, no, 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 you're mistaken. God doesn't work that way. And he doesn't work there. And he doesn't work with those people. And he doesn't act like that. I'm sorry, but you are highly mistaken. We know God, and he doesn't act like that. It is in moments like these that we find ourselves in the very dangerous possibility of handing Christ over to the church to be silenced. Judas had to wrestle with the same choice. What do you do when God does something that's unrecognizable? What do you do when you have God's map and your teacher says, no, we're going way over here? Judas continues this longest walk on this most fateful Wednesday. His knuckle wraps against the wooden door of the high priest's home. He's welcomed in with suspicion at first and then receives many slaps by a swarm of priests who assure him that he's just made the right decision as he grips his bonus. Thirty pieces of silver. His head swam with mixed emotions. How could he realize in this moment the significance of the number 30 pieces of silver? It's the exact amount to pay for a servant's freedom. 30 pieces of silver the same amount that's used to bind Christ, Christ used to set every slave, every man, woman, and child free from slavery to sin. Why did the high priest decide on 30 pieces of silver? Honestly, only God knows. But perhaps that was his inspired intent to tell you that today. Scripture tells us that from that moment on, that Judas looked for a moment to hand Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. But before we move beyond this, we have to ask a couple of questions. Because before you stop here and, and you think that Judas's character was devious, that he was dishonest, that he was shady in any way, we have to ask a couple of questions. Because otherwise you're going to miss the most important point in the Judas story. So we have to ask a question so that we can see this with our own eyes. Here's the question. Out of all the people in the world, who would you trust 
all of your money to. That's right. I want you to go to the bank, and I want you to withdraw every last penny that you have. I want you to go to the shoebox in your closet. I want you to dig between the mattresses. I want you to go to your retirement manager and cash everything out. And then I want you to take every last cent of that, and I want, to, I want you to give it to the person that is in your mind who you see is the most trustworthy person in the world. And no cheating. You can't give it to your spouse. That's not giving it away. And I know I'm going to hear from some of you afterwards that I'm wrong, but no cheating. Who is that person? What does that person look like? What are their consistent behaviors? What have they done and what have they not done over the years to prove to you that they're trustworthy with all of your wealth? What times have you seen them when they could have been dishonest? They could have taken something. They they could have walked on. They, They could have allowed something even to happen, but they would not allow that to happen. They're honest to the core and they're unshakable. Who is that most trustworthy person in your life? And as you picture that person in your mind, I want you to realize something. That person is an exact character clone of Judas. Judas was the most trusted disciple. And before you shake your head and disagree, I want to ask you a question. Who did the disciples trust all of their own personal money to? Who held all of the disciples' money? Judas. He was above reproach. He was the most trusted disciple. I can prove it even farther. Because at the Last Supper, Jesus comes straight out and says, Judas will betray me. And all of the crowd around don't ask the question, is it Judas? No, everyone asked, is it I, Lord? You know that you are above reproach when you are at the scene of the crime and they dismiss you as a non-suspect. He leaves in the middle of the meal. And all of the assumptions of the disciples is that he's going to do a noble errand. At no time, in any of the dreams, good or bad, of the disciples, did they ever imagine it possible that Judas would ever betray Jesus. Why? Perhaps it's because we equate in our minds that if a person is committed to the church, that they're also committed to Christ. We assume that as Christ moves, the church moves, but it doesn't. And to be fair to Judas, he didn't know that he was handing Christ over to die. He was taking Jesus to the officials to straighten him out. He didn't know the officials were crooked. We see that when he finally realizes the plans of the Jewish authorities, he quickly comes back and tries to give the money back because he didn't realize what their plans really were. But we come back to our ultimate question. Do your disappointments lead you to do the most outlandish things? With Judas, it did. I love the story. Happened in a location not much different than ours. A university town. Happened at a church, a nice large church, a wooden white painted church with a tall steeple. Had a great pastor. Would pack in the the members. And on this worship service, a young man from the university right across the street. He comes walking in. Of course, he's late. He's a young adult. 
So, of course, he's wearing ripped jeans and a ratty old T-shirt. His hairstyle, his bed head. Not that he styled it, the, the bed did. And he begins to walk his way down the aisle looking for a seat. But it's an amazing church. And there's not a vacant seat. And so as he makes his way all the way down to the front row, finding no seat, he does what most young adults would do. He just crosses his legs and sits right down on the tile next to the front row. About that time, the head elder, back of the church, he's a regal man, pinstripe suit, cane with a metal tip. You hear him begin to walk down to the front of the aisle. Every step, his cane clacking and echoing throughout the whole church. The church falls silent. They can't blame him. He's from another generation, another time, another expectation, and they can't blame him for what he's about to say. In fact, many of them wish they had the courage to say it themselves. This is inappropriate. The elder makes his way all the way down to where the boy is sitting at the front. He leans down with a stern look on his face and grips the boy's shoulder tightly. And leaning on his cane, he asks, Can I sit here and worship with you? And then with much difficulty and much effort, he lowers himself and sits on the tile so he can worship next to the young man. It is the unexpected acts of God that reveal to us new windows into the infinite character of God. It's Wednesday. It's all uphill from here. God is going to do the unexpected. How willing are we to allow God to surprise us the rest of the week?